New City Family Church, how are you? It is so great to see you guys. Um, I'm going to do a few little house cleaning uh, announcements. Um, <clears throat> a couple things. One is we've been talking about wanting to get together as a group and start getting to know one another and start getting, uh, you know, building relationships with one another. And so we're going to have an opportunity to do that next Sunday. So next Sunday we're going to do like after in the afternoon, I believe it is at 6. Yes. Six o'clock next Sunday. Um, if you want an opportunity to get to know us, get to know the launch team, start getting to know one another, uh, if you're interested in volunteering, if you're interested in just getting involved in the church, we're going to have a, a little uh, root beer ice cream social at Fitz's next Sunday night at six o'clock. Um, if you want us to email you and a uh, reminder about that, then make a little note on your uh, connection card and just say, you know, Fitz's or root beer or something, float or something like that. And we'll shoot you an email this week to say, hey, remember to come to the, to the social. Um, another thing I want to do, and uh, just briefly, is uh, there's a guy, uh, one of the managers here, his name's Tom. And I don't know if some of you have met him, but he's a great guy. And he's been incredible. He's the first guy here every Sunday, moving chairs, moving tables. And he contacted me this week, and a friend of his passed away. Um, and he wanted us just to have a special prayer for the family of this young man that passed away. The, 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 the young man who passed away was named Nathaniel Ingen Scott Denise. Um, and people called him Nate, and uh, apparently a, a, an accident, and he, he, uh, he, he died. He fell to his death. Um, so Tom asked us this week if, as a church, we could pray for the family, Nate's family, um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the people that were left behind by his uh, passing. So would you do that this week? Just keep Tom and, and, the, and the, the family of this young man, Nate, in your prayers and in your thoughts. And, um, you know, if you think of it, if you see Tom out there, he's the big burly guy with kind of curly brown, light brown hair. You know, just, you know, pat him on the back or let him know that we're praying for him, you know. Um, he's just a, he's a great guy, and, and so I feel like that's something that we should do. Um, before we get into the sermon... Uh, we have a representative here from Kingdom House, the volunteer coordinator from Kingdom House. His name's Kenneth Pruitt. He's going to come up here in just a minute, um, and he's going to tell you about a volunteer opportunity uh, that we're going to extend to everyone next Saturday morning. So I, I don't know. Some of you know this and some of you don't, but U-City Family Church sponsors um, various nonprofit organizations, and right now just local ones, Eventually, maybe we'll do more global ones as we get bigger. But 10% um, of U-City Family Church's income, 10% of the money that comes into through donations to U-City Family Church, we send back out into the community. So we're going to be sponsoring, this year we're going to be sponsoring two groups. Uh, one is Kingdom House. We're going to be sponsoring them financially with 10% of the income that's come into the church. And then... Um, Avenues Counseling Center, and we'll have a representative from Avenues. We met with her this week. We'll have her come probably sometime in November and give a little discussion about what Avenues does. Uh, but in addition to supporting these groups financially, we want to get out there. Part of our mission, as you know, engaging minds, encouraging hearts, and empowering hands, part of our mission is to get out there and, to, and you know, get our hands dirty, roll up our sleeves, and do something good in the community, okay? So we're going to get out there next Saturday and volunteer with Kingdom House um, and 
I don't know what we're going to be doing, but Kenneth is going to tell you what we're going to be doing. He's the volunteer coordinator. Um, so, Kenneth, why don't you just come up and make a, a little presentation about Kenneth, I mean about a Kingdom House, about what we'll be doing next Saturday. Give Kenneth a round of applause, would you? Well, good morning. Um, thanks for having me. I just, that worship was incredible. There's, you know, there's that moment and if you're really paying attention, you can actually, like, see the spirit arrive and you have to be careful and watch it and that, that's really cool to see. Um, well, again, my name's Kenneth. I'm the coordinator of volunteer mission and service learning at Kingdom House. I've been there a little over a year, uh, but Kingdom House has been there for 109 years. Um, we're located, if you can picture this, kind of just south of the Purina building, so smack downtown. Um, and the neighborhood around us has changed a lot, um, but the poverty in the community has not. And as you can imagine, as the economy continues to go the way it goes, um, our clients continue um, to suffer. So. Um, we're really trying to engage more and more of the community, um, not only right around Kingdom House, but um, even further out, um, even to the edge of the city here. Um, so we're really glad that U-City Families Church is, uh, has decided so early on in its existence to connect with us. I think that speaks a lot to your church leadership, that that's already really happening. Um, so next Saturday, um, Pastor Brent has told me that you folks will be leaving at 9 so um, gather in the parking lot here next to the Tivoli um, before 9 o'clock, and then you folks will caravan over to Kingdom House, which is maybe a 15, 20-minute drive. Um, and then we will be, uh, the agenda of the day is I'd love to first take you all just on a tour of the place so you can kind of see the building, see all the programming that we have. We really do a lot um, and try to provide a broad range of services. And then um, we'll work for a couple hours. Um, because of some of the kids and the teachers in our daycare, um, because of the health of growing up smack downtown in a city, um, a lot of painting has to be done on the weekends um, because they're allergic to that sort of stuff. So we'll be doing that. And then, it, again, with the economy, uh, when folks get cut from um, staff, that usually the maintenance guys suffer first. So a lot of light, unskilled manual labor um, is very helpful for groups who are coming to volunteer. So we'll be doing that sort of stuff. And then one thing that's unique about volunteering at Kingdom House is I like to try and stop maybe half hour to 20 minutes early um, and actually sit down and process what you've done and kind of connect that back to scripture and back to, um, you know, sort of remind us and, and, and um, continue to think about, you know, why we do what we do as Christians. So that's kind of what we'll be doing. And then we'll finish it by noon and you'll go on with your weekend. So thanks for having me. Um, I'm really excited about the connection that we're making with you, and um, I hope to see you next Saturday. Also, if you, uh, if you are planning to attend that and you want an email reminder about that, then make a little note on your connection card and say Kingdom House. They are a great organization. Kenneth probably, was it six months ago? Or something, Kenneth. Uh, I met with Kenneth, and he took me through a, a tour of their facility. Um, we knew when the, we founded this church, we knew that a key component uh, to the mission of this church was going to be engaging the community and doing good in this community. Um, so, Kenneth took me on a tour. They have they do emergency daycare. They have a food pantry. They have clothing. They do uh, tutoring. They do job training. I mean, they're they are an incredible resource in the community for folks that are struggling and, and suffering right now. And they've got an amazing track record, and we're, we're honored to be participating with them. So I think that is it for announcements. We'll want to uh, 
you know, mark your connection cards if you want to do the social. And I can't wait. Honestly, we were going through the connection cards this week, and um, I came out of my office, and I told Rebecca, I said, you know, there are all these people here, and I, and I haven't met hardly <laughs> any of them, or just briefly in passing, like, hi, how are you? Service is about to start in 30 seconds. So I want an opportunity to sit down and get to meet you guys and uh, get to know you and, and um, learn more about you and uh, about your interest in U City Family Church. So um, before we begin, let's just say a quick prayer. Um, and remember to keep uh, the, the friends and family of this young man, Nate, uh, in your prayers, okay? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful uh, to have the opportunity to gather together with each other and with you. We're grateful for the opportunity to sing uh, and, and to play good music and to worship you in song. And uh, also, Lord, in exploring your word and exploring um, the scriptures, learning about uh, what you have to tell us. And ultimately, ultimately, Lord, with the intention and the focus of going out and doing good uh, and um, doing what you've called us to do. We're so grateful, Lord, and we ask you to be with us today as we uh, explore your word and the gospel of Mark. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, the title of this sermon is, And Then the Lights Came On. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to just tell you a little story. Um, as I, as, I, as I like to do. But uh, I don't know about you, but I am a, I guess you would call it math, math-phobic. Math-phobic. I am terrible at math. I'm not a math guy. Never have been. Um, and unless some dramatic miracle happens, probably never will be. Um, when I was in about, I'm trying to remember when you do multiplication. Like fourth grade? Second grade. Marcia did it in second grade. Um, I, I was still learning the ABCs in second grade. Uh, no, so I just remember that my, my math struggles began very early. Um, I remember I had a math teacher, and I think Fred is recording this service, so I won't mention his name because he's still around. Um, he, I just remember one day I was sitting, trying, struggling to do my math, not very well, and this guy, my math teacher, we'll call him Mr. A., uh, Mr. A comes up and he leans over and he goes, he had a very deep voice, and he goes, um, Brent? And I said, yes. And he said, you've really been getting on my nerves a lot lately. And I go, oh, um, why is that? And he says, I don't know. You've just really been getting on my nerves a lot. And then he just moved on down the row. So I'm like, okay. Um, that wasn't encouraging. Uh, but <laughs> so... Um, then my other, another math incident that I had, I, I, I think this is the only time that I ever cheated in school. I think this is the only time. We were doing a multiplication, you know, test, and I was not doing well. Gordy McDaniel was sitting, like, right over there, one, one seat in front and one seat to the side. Gordy McDaniel, math wizard. And I'm doing my multiplication, and it's like, Eight times three, no idea. Two times seven, couldn't tell you. Five times four, no clue. Look over at Gordy McDaniel, and he's just putting down the numbers. Bing, bing, bing. So I go, oh. And so I started copying Gordy McDaniel's uh, uh, test. Turned the test in. Got a, I think it was a 98%, um, which was certainly a surprise to my math teacher because I'd been getting, you know, 20%. You know, I could do the one times three, 
I had all the ones dialed in. Um, most of the twos. So to my teacher's credit, I mean, my teacher actually could have said, you're busted and you're in huge trouble. But my teacher didn't do that. My teacher actually called my dad and said, Mr. Rome, um, Brent is struggling with multiplication. Is there a way that you could um, you know, help him? He needs to be doing multiplication tables at home. So my dad said, sure, no problem. I'll, I'll set him up. So my dad starts doing, making extra math homework for me. So he does the multiplication tables. But he did them. He made the mistake of doing them all in a row. So he would do like 4 times 1, 4 times 2, 4 times 3, 4 times 4, 4 times 5, 4 times 6, 4 times 7. I figured out that all you, you didn't actually have to multiply. All you had to do was add if you had everything in a row. So you could do 4 times 1. I knew that was 4. And I knew that 4 times 2 was just 4 more. And then 4 times 3 was just 4 more. So I would do 4, and then plus 4 is 8, and then plus 4 is 12. But then somewhere around 5 or 6, I got off by one number. My count was off by one number. And I was like, 4 times 6, 23. 4 times 7 would be 4 more, 27. 4 times 8 would be 31. 4 times 9. And so anyway, you know, uh, I got busted again. So my dad like, oh, it's interesting because you missed one and then you missed every one after that by one. So then he started mixing it up. Finally, I learned my multiplication tables. Um, if this story seems long, believe me, my, uh, my, my experience in math was uh, a very long and arduous trek. Um, finally, graduated from high school, get to college. They say, okay, you need to take this test to see what math class you're going to be in. I say, okay, great. I take the test. They say, okay, what's interesting is that, you know, we will teach you math here at college, but this is not college-level math that you'll be taking. This is called remedial math. And you will be taking classes here, but it will be high school math. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'm in college. I'm 19 now, 18, 19, but okay, I'll be taking, you know, seventh grade math. That's no problem. Um, I thought That'll, that's actually good because I'll be able to just knock it out of the park. No. I mean, fighting for a C, fighting for a C. Fortunately, it didn't affect my grade point average because it wasn't college credit math. So it just didn't show up on the transcript. Um, anyway, got through it. Finally got to the point where, okay, I was done with all my math. I, I finished the math. I was done with math. And it was like, great, humanities, bring it on. English, great. Religious studies, anthropology, geology, whatever. I love it. Uh, I got, then, then I was about to be a, a junior, I think, in college. And one of my professors says, you know, you ought to try out for this scholarship. There's a scholarship that would be really good. It's a public policy scholarship. And you actually get to go and study at Princeton University for the summer. I said, man, that sounds great. I applied for it. What do you know? We did the interview, had the grades, got the scholarship. Getting ready to go, they say, okay, well, th this is interesting because what's going to happen is you'll be at the public policy school at Princeton, and Princeton is known for being having a very quantitative focus. So you'll be taking advanced statistics, and it'll be fantastic. You'll have a great opportunity to learn, you know, uh, public policy from a quantitative, a mathematical standpoint. <clears throat> is this story too long? Because it's long. Okay, I'll shorten it up. Um, Long story, long. I, uh, I go there, and the first day, I walk into the st statistics class, and the guy, 
I'm try, I tried desperately this week to remember his name. His, name's, his name was David. He, he was, they called him David. He was from South America, and he was just a cool guy, and he was our math teacher. But he gave us five math problems. They looked kind of like this. Um, I, uh, I looked at them, and then I, there were only five of them, but they, like I said, they, they looked like this. And I, after lunch and after class, I went down to the math lab, and I just stared at them. And I thought, there's, this is impenetrable. Like, there's no way. From about 1 o'clock until about 8 o'clock that night, I just looked at the, number, the first problem, the first math of five, first problem. I left and I go. I, I left and I went to a payphone because this was back in the payphone days, and uh, I called my dad in Arizona. I said, "Dad, I can't even do the very first problem on this math problem." He said, "Son, if it takes you all summer, just sit there and do math problem number one. Just do m- number one, even if it takes all summer." I go back down. It's like I stayed down there, kept working on number one till about midnight, midnight or one o'clock. Didn't get anywhere on it. Started to leave, uh, left, and I was walking back to my dorm. And on the way back to my dorm, I'm thinking, you know, if like a very distant relative should maybe get sick or maybe even pass, like a a very distant and very old relative, (laughs) you know, then I would have an opportunity to leave here and say, I'm sorry, I just can't stay because my great, 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 great aunt so-and-so just died. And so, or I thought, you know, maybe if, if I just got in a very minor traffic accident where someone like just barely clipped my foot and just broke a few of the metatarsals there and just like, I wouldn't be severely wounded, but at least it would be enough where I could say, I can't, you know, I'm sorry, I can't carry on, but I wouldn't have quit. I would have had to have left, you know, um, anyway, none of that happened. I wandered past my dorm. I wandered into the city, the little city town of Princeton, like sort of lost in a, in a fog. Kind of went like this and went, oh, my gosh. Went back to my dorm, fell asleep. Next day, get up, go to this teacher, and I just go, I am completely lost. This guy was awesome. This guy, and there were, fortunately, there were a couple other people that were in my boat. This guy took us and, after class, would work with us from, like, 1 o'clock in the afternoon until midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, every day. This guy was awesome. And within about a week and a half or two weeks... Bang, the lights came on for me. And I just went, I get it. I get it. Now, do I still have it? No. But at that time, I got it. I mean, there was, a mo- there was just literally a moment where I was like, oh, I see, because X means this and Y means this. And if you do this, and it got to the point where I was actually able to explain it to, my, to, my, to the other students that were at my very low level. Um, and and we, we all ended up passing this class. I didn't get an A, but I passed the class. The lights came on, and it was amazing. Um, and it was truly, for me, one of the biggest accomplishments of my life, that I was able to not only do math problem number one, but I ended up getting all the math problems done and took the test at the end and passed. It wasn't genius, but passed. Um, and it, had to, it, it, it all came down to just one time, finally, the lights came on. Have any of you experienced... <laughs> You want to tell us about it? No. Have any of you experienced a moment like this when the lights come on for you? Um, this passage that we're going to read today is Mark. In Mark, it's, it's Jesus. As you remember, last two weeks ago, uh, he was baptized. Last week, he went out into the desert, and he went through this rite of passage where things were very... Um, he was tried in the desert. He was, he was tempted. He was surrounded by wild beasts. Um, 
And then ultimately he, he came into Capernaum and he started preaching and he started walking in his calling and he started walking in what he was called to do and his purpose. Um, this passage is fascinating because this is when he actually starts to, um, he starts to perform miraculous works. And let me just tell you right off the bat, when I'm studying for a sermon, I like to go and listen to other preachers. There's a lot of preachers that you can listen to online. There are a few that I really respect, and I download their sermons, and I listen, and I try to figure out what angle they're taking or what they've studied or you know, some of their research I'll dig into. Um, nobody touched this passage. This is a passage. Let me just read it to you, and you'll see why. So Jesus had preached in the synagogue, and everyone said, this guy has amazing authority. And then this passage. Just then, a man with an unclean spirit was in the synagogue. He cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus, Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be quiet and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so they began to argue with one another, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Uh, let's just leave it there for one second. So nobody wanted to, to no, no preachers that I could find touch this passage because it is like not what we experience today. We don't see, uh, you know, you know, there are some movies where this happens, but it's just not a lot of the unclean spirit indwelling a person and shouting out of the person and then being cast out in convulsions and all that. This is a very, you know, sort of unique experience that was happening in Jesus's time not to say it couldn't happen today but we just don't tend to see it in my world there's not a lot of this activity going on um uh but what's fascinating is that and and i want to get into it in a minute but what is fascinating to me is that this sort of for example this guy here where who had the unclean spirit apparently was a normal guy by all other respects he attended the synagogue and he was just a regular guy going and everything but when jesus came the light of, of Jesus shone a light, shone um, uh, a light on the things that were hidden. It, 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 it showed things, it revealed things that were hidden and buried and tucked away and sinister, but unknown. And when Jesus came, and we'll see all through the book of Mark, when he would come onto the scene, things that just wouldn't normally happen happened because suddenly this light is shining into a very, very dark place, and we're seeing things that we wouldn't normally see. Um, this word authority shows up uh, a lot uh, down there at the bottom. He says, um, what is this, a new teaching with authority? The, the tradition of the day was that uh, the, when, a, when a rabbi would, would preach or teach, he would refer to an earlier rabbi, and he would say, he would give the passage, and he would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says that da-da-da-da-da. And then Rabbi so-and-so commented on that, and it would be a Mishnah. It would be, uh, you know, you would look at the earlier rabbis, see what they said, and then you would form, you know, what you had to say. When Jesus spoke, this term authority, the Greek word that is used there is exousia, E-X-O-U-S-I-A. And so what that means, ex means out of, like if you extract something, extract and ushia means being or self. What they were saying is, and it doesn't translate very well, but what they were saying is, when Jesus comes, 
He is speaking out of himself. He's not referring back to scribe so-and-so or rabbi so-and-so. He is literally speaking out of himself. His authority comes from within. And he backed it up by performing these incredible miracles. Um, His fame then spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, this is uh, Jesus. And remember last week he recruited uh, Simon, who later became Peter, Simon's brother Andrew, and James and John. All these guys were in the fishing business. Simon and Andrew had their fishing business. And Jesus says, neglect your fishes and come with me. Uh, and and uh, James and John worked with their dad, Zebedee. And, and Jesus recruited them. Remember, and Zebedee standing there in the boat last week going, guys. And they're going, we'll catch you later. Um, Simon's, okay, so as soon as they left the synagogue, they went to Simon's, uh, they went to Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. A couple points about this passage that I just want to note very quickly. One is, if you're going to ask someone to be your disciple... And the outcome of, your, of that person's discipleship is that they're going to neglect their fishing business. They're going to go on the road. They're going to make no money. People are going to persecute them. Then the guy who's getting them, you know, who's telling them to follow him is going to get killed. And then you're going to go tell everyone else how great that guy was. And then you're going to get killed. Okay? If that's what your, if that's the pitch that you're giving to someone, it's a good idea to get in good graces with their wife. And I think Jesus here is healing Peter's mother-in-law. And and I think it's a good move because he's saying, um, he's saying, look, you know, I know I'm asking a lot of your husband, but I'm going to heal your mother-in-law. So anyway, um, just a little detail that goes unnoticed by most theologians. Um, Fascinating, though, and we'll get into this later, what her response is. She gets up from a fever and immediately begins to serve them. Her response to being healed, her response to the touch of Jesus is to turn around and do good. Um, When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all those who were sick and all those who were demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. People were just flocking to him. What's interesting, let me just take a side note. What, what is fascinating here is that we learn about the miracles of Jesus, and there's, there's increased veracity or validity to these scriptures is given to us by the critics of Jesus. Because what's fascinating is that in the first and second century, the people who did not believe in Jesus, they did not say, hey, Jesus never performed miracles. That's baloney. That's all made up. What they said is, Yes, Jesus performed miracles, but he was a sorcerer. He did it through evil. So it's fascinating that even the very early critics of Jesus were were not saying that he didn't perform the miracles. They were saying that he did, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't God. It was something else. Um, And in fact, in another gospel, Jesus confronts that and he says, you know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. If If I was being inspired by evil, then I wouldn't be able to drive out evil. I think there's a quote in, in, your, uh, in your passage that says, from, from Dr. Martin Luther King, where he says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. 
And uh, that's, that's Jesus. Um, it's fascinating that the attacks against Jesus actually help us to understand even better um, what he actually did. Uh, when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing him all those, all those who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. But he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Um, it's, it's fascinating that Jesus, and there's a whole, all through Mark, you'll see, Jesus keeps telling people, I'm going to heal you, or I'm going to drive out the demon, or I'm going to do this, but please don't tell anyone because... I've got stuff to do, and if you tell everyone, it's going to make it harder for me to accomplish my mission. And, of course, every one of them completely disobeys him. And they immediately go out and go, oh, my gosh, you can't believe what's happening. And his fame spreads, spreads, spreads. Um, Very early in the morning. So people had been at the house over at Peter's house all night long. Um, His mother-in-law had been serving like crazy. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, made his way to a deserted place. We see again that Jesus takes time to retreat and pray. Uh, And he was praying there. Um, Simon and his companions went searching for him. They found him and said, hey, everyone is looking for you. This is very early in the morning. And he said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. So he went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. I want to just stop real quickly right there. If Jesus was trying to build a little kingdom for himself, if he was trying just a little, if he was trying to just, you know, market himself, if he was trying to build a little luxury, you know, sort of commune for himself, he had a crowd. He had the crowd right there. Everything was there. Everything was good to go. And he's saying, no, I've got to leave the crowd, and I've got to go out to where other people don't know. I've got a bigger mission than sitting around here, you know, building a little, a little small kingdom of people just to, you know, just to glorify me in this little spot. I've got a global mission that I've got to do. Um, so he heads out. And he said, uh, okay, so he went into all of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues, driving out demons. Then this is, this is a great story. Then a man with a very serious skin disease came to him and on his knees begged him. If you are willing, the guy said, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Immediately the disease left him and he was healed. Then he sternly warned him and he sent him away at once telling him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses prescribed for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet, the man went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but he was out in the deserted places and they would come to him from everywhere. Um, let's just leave that one up for a minute. So yeah, again, again, all through Mark we see, hey, I'm going to do something for you, don't tell anybody, and then they go do it. Um, what is fascinating about this passage is that the man that he's referring to was a leper. The man had a disease called leprosy. And uh, leprosy, when he says, I am unclean, that's actually a legal term that he's using. And he gets that from the book of Leviticus, which I'm just going to very briefly read something to you from Leviticus because it's unlikely that we'll spend a lot of time in Leviticus um, as a church. Um, not because it's not a great book. It's uh, it's, it's, it's a legal code. It's very, very detailed. Um, in Leviticus, uh, not only 
do you, is there a very, let me just read you a little pa- a bit of Leviticus, okay? <laughs> this, is what, this is what you're supposed to do in, in, according to the legal code of the day if you had a little skin blemish or something on your skin. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. When a person has a swelling scab or spot on the skin of his body and it becomes a disease on the skin of the body, he is to be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons, the priests. The priest will examine the infection on the skin of his body. If the hair on the infection is turned white, the infection appears to be deeper than the skin of his body as a skin disease. After the priest examines him, he must pronounce him unclean. But if the spot on the skin of his body is white and does not appear to be deeper than the skin and the hair is not turned white, then the priest must quarantine the infected person for seven days. The priest will then re-examine him on the seventh day. If the infection remains unchanged in the sight and has not spread the skin, the priest must quarantine him for another seven days. The priest will examine him again on the seventh day. If the infection is faded, it is not spread on the skin. It goes on, it goes on, it goes on and on and on. And it is very, very detailed. Um, a couple points about this. What it also says is that if a person is deemed unclean, if they have a, uh, a disease that, and they're pronounced unclean, then they have to do the following. Tear their clothes, wear a mask over the lower part of their face, uh, live outside of the camp in a leper colony, And if, by chance, someone comes near them, and this is all in Leviticus chapter 14, which I know you will all go home and read this afternoon. Uh, uh, So you have to live out in a leper colony, but if you do see someone approaching you, pursuant to the code, you are required to say, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, so that that person can know, I will go around. I will not come near you. That's what makes this story incredible, because here is a leper who has torn clothes, has a mask over his face, and who has wandered in from the leopard, leper colony, has clearly heard about Jesus, has wandered in and has found Jesus. We don't know exactly where Jesus is right now. It's right after he was praying in a deserted place. But he approaches Jesus and he says, uh, I'm unclean, so he's, he's, obeying, he's obeying the law, the, the Moses code. And, and, and he says, I'm unclean, but, and he gets on his knees, I know that you can heal me. It's an amazing story, an incredibly vulnerable moment in the gospel uh, where, uh, uh, you know, this guy, remember, this guy has been not, not just quarantined. He went through the, quor- the double, triple quarantine process years ago. He's been cast out of the, of the community altogether and living out in the leper colony. Jesus' response is stunning. Because what Jesus does, not only does he, he, you know, what you would anticipate is like, I will heal you from here, shazam, and a lightning bolt will come out of his finger. Jesus says, yeah, I'll heal you, come here. Touches him. It says, Jesus moved with compassion, touches him, and says, I'll heal you, be clean. That is a startling and stunning image in that day. And I, and I don't think they, I don't think they included that line by accident that Jesus touched him, because Jesus is indicating to everyone, not only when I come do the lights come on and I and I expose things that are bad, I expose things that are evil, but I am the remedy for those things, and I will come out and I will touch you and I will heal you with my touch, uh, and it doesn't matter how diseased you are how unclean you are, how messed up you are, how you know, twisted up in sin you are, 
I'm coming for you. I'm coming to touch you. I'm coming to reveal you. I'm coming to heal you. Um, and so that is a, an amazing passage of, where, uh, of, of how Jesus cleansed the leper. What I also love about this passage is that Jesus doesn't just say, you're healed, um, you know, let's just move on. He says, you're healed, but I want you to go through the proper channels. I want you to get a systematic verification that you're healed. I think that is huge because Jesus is not doing, you know, sleight of hand, smoke and mirrors where somebody feels like they're healed and they jump out of their wheelchair and then, you know, 60 minutes follows up a week later and you find out, oh, they're back in their wheelchair. No, Jesus is saying, no, I want, this is, this is the real deal. This is an actual physical, objective, scientific healing. Go to the priest and have them verify through the Levitical, Levitical code that, in fact, you are healed. And I won't read the Levitical code for, <laughs> for determining whether or not someone is cleansed or clean. But it is very complex, I assure you. It is very rigorous. It does end with the person shaving every part of their body, including their eyebrows, and going through a rigorous examination multiple times uh, to determine that they are clean. So Jesus wants to, very, very clearly, wants to demonstrate that his healing is the real thing. Couple things come out of this um, big passage that we read today, and there are a couple themes that I just want to touch on briefly. Um, before I do, I, I want to say: Has anyone ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? Have you ever heard of that? Jefferson Bible is a Bible. You know, Thomas Jefferson, a you know brilliant legal mind and a brilliant political mind, not as much a theologian. Uh, Thomas Jefferson made his own Bible, and this was back in 1820. And what he did was he took a razor blade. He took a regular Bible, and then he took a razor blade, and he cut out all of the parts where there were any reference to healing, any reference to the supernatural, any reference to demons, any reference to resurrection, any reference to anything that was metaphysical or supernatural. He cut it out, and he made it the Jefferson Bible. And it was very rational. And... Uh, and he just basically said, um, you know, the teachings are what's important. And I love this in a way because it's so goofy. But, but uh, you know, we've got Mark who's writing this shortly after Jesus' life while there are eyewitnesses around. He's describing events that even the critics are not saying didn't happen. They're just saying it was attributable to something else. And then, but here in 1820, Thomas Jefferson says, no, no, that couldn't have happened. I'm going to cut all that butt stuff out. Um, but, which is what kind of some of the preachers that I was listening to this week did. They were like, there was a demon-possessed man, and there was leprosy, and then, but let's talk about uh, <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so anyway, this stuff is, is, is in the Bible, and it's, it's, we, you know, as Christians, this is part of what we adhere to. This is part of our text. Um, so, two, two points I just want to make. One is, that Jesus reveals us. He reveals the parts of us that lay dormant and that are buried and hidden. I'm going to give you a brief story. Um, very dangerous thing to say, apparently. Um, so, my mom lives in Arizona. And by the way, my mom is now, 
acting as the church receptionist. So if you call the church number on the website, you'll actually get my mom. So call her this week and say, hey, we need you in Arizona. I mean, we need you in St. Louis. Yeah, we need you in St. Louis. We don't need you in Arizona. Um, Just make a mental note of that. Uh, So in Arizona, there are scorpions. Scorpions are these little arachnids. They're these little arthropods that they have little segmented exoskeletons, and they've got eight legs, and they've got big pinchers, and they've got a tail that comes sort of over the top, and it's got a deadly stinger. Um, But they blend in very well to the desert, and you cannot see them. And they're all over Phoenix, Arizona. And my mom told me that this summer they're particularly bad because it's very hot, so they come inside. These little scorpions, um, uh, a fascinating little, fascinating little uh, blurb about them that I came across this week that I would like to, I want to find the author of this. The author says about scorpions, though the scorpion has a fearsome reputation as venomous, only about 25 species have venom capable of killing a human being. Oh, okay, well, you know what? Everybody thinks they're really dangerous, but only 25 species of them can kill a human being. Fantastic. Um, Editor. So anyway, so these scorpions, they, they just blend in. They can be right in the house, and you don't know they're there. Um, I've been on the phone with my mom before when she goes, oh, there's a scorpion, and then suddenly the phone drops, and then you, know, you hear shovels banging around, and like things happen. <laughs> she comes back feeling very, very tough. Um, she, uh, so, so these scorpions, they, they hang out. You can't see them, but if they sting you, you know, 25 species of them can kill you. So, but there's a little interesting fact about them. And fortunately, the uh, bug killers, what do you call them, have figured this fact out. That is, under certain ultraviolet lights, under a certain wavelength of light, a black light, they actually glow in the dark. They look like this. Sorry. I didn't mean to... I mean, embed that into your brain for the week. But it's fascinating because if you need to find them, if you need to find out whether there are scorpions in your house, what they do in Arizona is they wait till it's nighttime and they come in with these fluorescent lights and they shine them around your house. And they go, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one. Oh, there's one over there. And it's only by virtue of this light that this very venomous, dark, you know, bad, I don't want to call them evil, because I mean, but they're pretty bad. Um, that's where these, that's only by this very particular light can they, are they exposed. That is what Jesus does when he comes onto the scene. It's not that there weren't evil spirits all, you know, we don't, we don't see demonic possession and that kind of thing in the Old Testament. It's not that they weren't, wasn't there. It's that when Jesus comes onto the scene, here is this man who is also the son of God and emanates a light that has just not been seen before on the earth. And it exposes things that we just didn't see before. Jesus does the same thing with us in our hearts. Um, I don't know about you, but it, whenever there is a sort of a, a hidden sin or a hidden secret or something dark within me, 
It's most easily exposed when there's someone that is righteous around me. And I remember you guys, many of you saw my Uncle Norman here the first week. That guy, you know, I can walk into a room and just go, oh, yeah, I need to confess that uh, this, that, and the other thing. I mean, he just has it. He's, he's a righteous guy. And, and when I was a kid, we actually lived with him for a while. And, you know, when you're 14, you're sinning every, you know, 15 seconds. And so I would walk into a room and I would just be like, oh, man, you know, right. It just exposes, it exposes the sin. Um, there's a uh, um, commercial on TV right now, and I was going to show it to you, but, but uh, it's a, and I'm, we're not, this church is not sponsored by Febreze, I just want you to know that. But th- this is a Febreze commercial where they take these people and they blindfold them. Have you seen this? And they take them into this like dingy, dark, nasty warehouse, and they say, you know, smell the, smell the stuff. And these people are taking these nasty old blankets with dog hair and stuff and like smelling it. And they're going, ah, this is refreshing. This smells like summer lilacs and peaches and pears. And, and, you know, it's fantastic. And then they take the blindfold off and these people are repulsed. And they're like, ah, you know, what's going on? That's kind of like what sin is like in our life, okay? When we cover it up, we kind of keep it hidden, we keep it buried. But when, when God comes into our lives, when, you know, when Christ comes into our hearts, things get exposed. Things get exposed to us that we don't like. Um, my son, Jameson, he doesn't know this principle yet. He does not know that you're supposed to cover your tracks. He doesn't know you're supposed to hide your sin. So Jameson will come in and he'll say, uh, hey, Lincoln's crying. And we'll say, oh, why is Lincoln crying? Oh, because I hit him uh, with my truck. And we go, oh, well, okay, you're not really supposed to do that. Um, thank you for telling us. Um, he hasn't learned to, to, to hide his sin yet, but we do. We bury it. You know, there's a great Old Testament uh, passage in the book of Joshua where the, 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 the Israelites went out and they were conquering uh, town after town. They conquered Jericho and then they were going to go attacked this little tiny town and they sent a few guys up to attack the town. AI was the town. And these, you know, few guys up in AI routed the Israelites and sent them running. Uh, and they said, why, you know, what, what happened? And God exposed that there was sin in the camp. But one of the guys, Achan, had taken some gold and some silver and, some, and, a, and a Babylonian robe when they attacked Jericho and he kept it and he wasn't supposed to. And he took it to his tent and he buried it and he hid it and he covered it up and ultimately God exposed it and said, this sin is what is causing this damage in your community. Um, I'm going to read you just a quick little quote by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote a book called Life Together. It's a brilliant, brilliant book if you haven't had a chance to read it. Great Christian man um, from the 30s. And this is about exposing sin. He says, in confession, and he's talking about confessing our sins, In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man all by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it. Is that true? I mean, that's true for me. The more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community, like the guy at the synagogue. 
or, or in church. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and, the, and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and hidden is made manifest. It is a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted. But God breaks gates of brass and bars of iron. That's Dietrich Bonhoeffer and life together. Just saying, look, the power of sin is in the secret. And when God comes into our hearts and when we, you know, when we accept and when we turn to God, the sin is exposed. And by exposing it, you know, you got the, you got the, the bug killer to, slay, you know, to, kill, to, to kill the scorpion. When you expose it, you can handle it. You can deal with it. Okay? Um, just very quickly, let me just... The last, the last point I want to touch on is that not only does God reveal us, reveal the inner darkness in us, but he does it for the purpose of healing us. He reaches out and touches us to heal us. And in that passage where he throws his arms around this leper who has a just disfiguring, terrible disease, uh, Jesus shows us that he is there to reach out, to touch us, and to heal us. Um, In the natural, just in the natural, the power of touch can be incredibly valuable. Um, There are a number of studies that show uh, that that, uh, recently... um, the School of Medicine at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, they did a study of 100 adults with spouses or long-term partners. They were told to hold hands while viewing a pleasant 10-minute video. Then they were asked to hug for 20 seconds. Then all of the participants spoke for a few minutes about a recent event that made them angry or stressed. Um, There was another group of people that did not have the physical touch before having this conversation. What they found is that the blood, the blood pressure soared in the no-contact people. Their systolic upper uh, blood pressure reading jumped 24 points, more than double the rise for the, the huggers, the people who had, who had had you know, physical contact. And, um, and the diastolic, the lower part, also rose. Heart rate increased 10 beats a minute for those without contact compared with 5 beats a minute for those that had contact. Just in, the, just in general life, just in normal life, I'm not talking about any kind of um, you know, supernatural just the normal life, physical contact, a hug or squeezing somebody's hand or a pat on the back, or it, it, it has, you know, beneficial, it has health benefits as well as emotional and psychological benefits. How much more when, when Christ reaches out to us and touches us with this supernatural healing power that he had, when he reaches out to the person that is broken, that is hurting, um, that has been damaged in some way, that hasn't been touched. I mean, the leper had not been touched, physically touched, in years. And Jesus reaches out and says, I will touch you. I will heal you. I'll make you mine. I'll reveal the sickness. I'll reveal what's inside of you. And I'll be the remedy as well. And like the leper, and like Peter's mother-in-law, Simon's mother-in-law, his name was Simon at the time, the response to this is that we turn around and we do the same. We go out. We serve others. We touch others with the presence of God. We, you know, 
Jesus now is not telling us to be silent. We don't have to be silent. The leper was supposed to be silent, and he wasn't. Uh, we're supposed to not be silent, but a lot of times we are. You know, it's okay to express the goodness of God in your life. It's okay to let people know, you know, what has changed in your life as a result of coming to God or opening your heart to God or allowing God to expose, you know, what's in your life. You know, I, I can tell you personally from my own experience, for me, when I really began to, 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 to search out God and when I finally ultimately kind of came to God and accepted Christ into my heart, I personally was appalled by the stuff that the accumulated sin in my own life. It, well, what, what was seemed totally normal at the time, I looked back and, and I just went, oh, man, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that to that person. I cannot believe I thought that or I behaved in that way to that person. I just can't believe I did it. You know, and that could, if, 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 that's all that, if that's all that God offered, it would be a, that would be debilitating because you would be looking back on this sin and this bad things that you've done and you, and you would just feel horrible. But that's not the end of the story because he says, look, I'm exposing it, but I'm exposing it so I can heal you, so I can cleanse you, so I can make you whole, so I can make you clean, so you can be reincorporated into the world as a, as a new creature. So I just want to encourage all of you this week that, you know, let God reveal those parts in your heart, those things in your life that shouldn't be there. Just let him turn the light on. Just let the lights come on and let those things be exposed. And then let him heal you. Let him fix those things. Let him remedy those things. You know, a lot of that... A lot of that comes slowly. Some of it is not, it's not going to be overnight. We're not, we're not asking for, you know, Shazam-type miracles. We're just saying, let God expose these things in your heart and let him cleanse you. Let him make you whole. Ultimately, so that you have the wherewithal, the strength to go out and do the same for others. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... Uh, the stories that you tell us here in the, in the book of Mark and the truths that you um, expose to us, the truths that you show us by your example. We are deeply grateful today. We're deeply grateful to be able to come together as a community to worship you, to love you, to love each other, and to love the world around us and to do your will. God, we ask that you would... Uh, Expose the, the, the darkness in our own hearts, those things that are buried and, and, and hidden. We ask you to expose them, and we ask you to heal them so that we, Lord, can go out and do what you've asked us to do and accomplish our mission through you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a, an opportunity for all of us to... Uh, just spend a few minutes. We do this 